So it's a double parallel that's found nowhere else, analogy in the scripture. It's a very sacred and binding relationship we have, and marriage is the closest picture that he makes of that. Now, the simple lesson is that marriage is filled with the Spirit of God will manifest submission, care, love, and mutual respect. I assume all of us are very aware how carnal we can be towards our mates when we uh, refuse to walk in the Spirit. Our hearts are evil, desperately wicked, and we can be bad to the bone. And uh, no one knows that more than married people. Therefore, there must be two essential elements present for successful marriages. First, communication. Effective communication, which means I'm a good listener. I have two ears, one mouth. The ratio speaks for itself. I'm to communicate clearly what I desire to express and not in some explosive outburst that attempts to intimidate my mate or anything else. But as submissive and as loving, depending on the Spirit of God. Secondly, standards to agree on. Otherwise, the two will go different directions. There must be a unified standard by which the husband and the wife live. One flesh and one mind growing together. One flesh and two minds grow apart. They just can't hold together. So, it is with our marriage relationship to Christ, individually and collectively, as a church. The church must have good communication with Christ, which is prayer. Speaking to the Lord, that's what prayer is. Second, the church must agree with Christ regarding the standards, which is His Word. So you have prayer and the Word. These two cannot be neglected nor ignored without severe consequences to the church. God gave these two channels for the church to partake of the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer and the Word are the life-transforming twins of the church. We might even call them Siamese twins because they are inseparable. They go together. And so, as we continue in our series of the nature of the church, let's look at three aspects about prayer and the Word. So we can see the clear nature of the church. First, the importance of prayer and the word in the New Testament church overall. Second, we'll look at the importance of prayer in the believer's life. And thirdly, the importance of the word in the believer's life. So we look at the church, then the individual. And we see the consistency to mark the nature of the church. Let's begin here with the importance of prayer <clears throat> and the word. In the New Testament. The practice of prayer was a pattern of the early church, as you know. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the 120 continued in prayer and supplication, but they were not praying to Mary, but to Jesus. They were all in the upper room, and they were praying to Jesus, not to Mary. And they were praying that as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. These all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Remember, they believed in Christ after the resurrection, not before. They prayed, and the place was shaken. Acts 4.31 tells us, as the book of Acts gives us the record of the nature of the church through prayer. 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. There in chapter 4, the book of Acts, verse 31. Now the background of that verse is the threatening words of the rulers and the elders, as you know, not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And in spite of that, they prayed and God gave them boldness and power to do the will and the work of God. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, prayed as he was being stoned by those of the synagogue of the freedmen. He prayed as follows, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he has said this, he fell asleep. Now, you can see this is not natural what's going on in the book of Acts. These are born-again believers. This is the church. This marks their nature. Peter also prayed in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, verse 9, on the rooftop of Joppa, as God spoke to him. You remember that um, Peter was given an open door to the Gentiles by the vision there. As he went up, he was hungry and a screen of all manner of unclean things came down. And the Lord says, take hell and eat. And he says, now, so Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean or common. And Jesus rebuked him, says, don't you ever call common anything that I have cleansed. And he was showing them that now he was opening the doors to the Gentiles. And after that, Peter received the vision and the men from Cornelius' house. And he went and he preached to them. So not so, Lord, is a contradiction in prayer. As God is directing and guiding us, and he directs us through his word or through prayer, we cannot say, not so, Lord. If he's Lord, it's yes. Because he's never going to ask us anything by which he doesn't equip us to fulfill that requirement. Now, the word was the source of authority to authenticate the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 again, verse 14 <clears throat> through 16 the crowd was uh, confused and others were mocking, declaring they were drunk, as you know. And Peter, standing to his feet, said, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. For this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he pulls back to the Old Testament and points of fulfillment. The word became the authority for identifying what was going on. That is what we're to do. If we can't put our finger on something that we're practicing, then we have no business practicing it or teaching it. The word became the standard for the church, not the words of men. Very important. Today, they're the words of men, impressive words, clever words, but they contradict or add to the word of God. The addition of the 3,000 to the church at Pentecost did not change their commitment to the word. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, Acts 2, 42. They didn't get caught up in their self-importance. The word alone can save man. The word alone can equip man for the service of Jesus Christ. That never changes. Now, the disciples recognized prayer and the word as two basic important priorities then for the life of the church. In chapter 6 of the book of Acts again, verse 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. And when there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists about their widows being neglected in the daily distribution, as you know, the twelve sets of the multitude of disciples in verse 1 and 2, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The word serve is diakonia, the same word for deacon. 
Not because they were too good to do little things. Not that they were too important or famous for physical work. They said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word and appointed others to serve. So in other words, the disciples were wise enough to know the priorities of the church was prayer and the word. As God was adding to the church, they delegated all the different things so that things could get done. The disciples knew that the only way the church can be effective in growth is to disciple others in ministry. In verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen and other men to serve tables. As the deacons here, who come on Sunday morning to prepare everything, and in the evening they clean up different things, people in the children's ministry. Jesus exemplified a life of prayer to reveal the importance and power of the word by his life and ministry, as you know. E.M. Bounds said, about prayer and the church as follows, and I'm quoting, when the church is in the condition of prayer, God's cause always flourishes and his kingdom on earth always triumphs. When the church fails to pray, God's cause decays and evil of every kind prevails. A prayerless pastor, church, and Christians are denying God's ability to direct and provide and man's privilege to ask and receive. Jesus says, ask, Please ask in John 14. You see, the church today, for the most part, does not consider prayer important for the church. The leaders are dependent on their websites to communicate, promote, and solicit contributions and whatever else. To show how famous they are with their little videos, daily videos, to show them jogging on the beach or riding their surfboard or whatever. As if we really care. It's amazing to me. They depend on marketing principles also for their products to merchandise the people of God. I'm not speaking against good material. And I'm not speaking about you getting CDs. I'm talking about self-promotion that just merchandises the people of God. The majority of the churches today do not have prayer meetings in their, as their sole dependence on God. They promote conferences and events. They promote musical artists and speakers. They promote social events and protests. They do not promote prayer for people. And leaders do not see the importance of prayer, evident by the few people that show up when there is a prayer meeting. Our church was no different. It seems like people don't think that prayer works or it's important. And so for years, we had different points of prayer. You know, this night, that night, switch it around. Let's see what works better. Finally, the Lord just revealed, just ministered to me. And again, this is something that the Lord just let on my heart. And when the Lord shows something, if it's from Him, it's going to work. We just canceled the first Thursday of the month, our midweek study. And then we just have prayer, communion, a time to pray for people, to pray for our country, to pray for direction, to pray for families, for friends, to pray for those that are sick, to anoint them with oil and just worship the Lord. And it's great. The body comes and we do that. So again, rather than trying to be clever, Lord, what would you have us do? How do you want us to do it? So that as he reveals it to us, then it becomes effective, depending on him. We have a constant prayer ministry 
as people are praying constantly, when people put their names in, they call in for different things and they're praying for them all the time. Prayer is one of the reasons why this ministry continues. It's an unseen ministry. It's behind the scenes ministry. No one's applauded. No one's credited. It's just the prayers of the saints. The majority of the church today ignore and fail to recognize the importance of the Word of God also being taught from the pulpit. They're into entertaining people with their PowerPoint presentations and the latest fads. Now, there's nothing wrong with using PowerPoint, but when it replaces the exposition and proclamation of the Word of God, that's a problem because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. It's the Word of God that's going to do something in our lives. Many churches today are attempting to initiate or duplicate the programs of some popular pastors promising that their church will double. Like Rick Warren's 40 Days Purpose-Driven Church Books. By hundreds of thousands visiting his website to download his sermon notes of the previous Sunday so they can preach at the next one. What an insult to God. Would you eat food that somebody else chewed? My Lord. They've got complete websites that you as a pastor who are lazy just go on there. They give you an outline, a note, and you don't have to study. You can just teach it the next week. Wow. Listen to God's judgment over the people who are perverting his word. And the oracles of the Lord shall be mentioned no more. For every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, our God, Jeremiah 23, 36. God's word. So the importance of prayer and the word in the New Testament church is unmistakable. Unmistakable. You see it. Secondly, Let's look at the importance of prayer in the believer's life, individually. Prayer is a door to understanding God's word, as you know. That is why prayer precedes the word in the early church, as we saw in Acts 6.4. Mark the order. We will give ourselves continue to prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer is to precede the study of the word in order that God illuminate it by his Holy Spirit. As we saw this morning, he turns on the light. This was the prayer of Paul for the Ephesians, the Colossians, if you read it, in Ephesians 1, 15 through 19, Colossians 1, 7 through 12. Their lives of our understanding be illuminated to understand, to be empowered, to be yielding to the Lord, to have his way with us over and over and over again. Prayer is equivalent to air that we breathe Pinch your nose, cup your mouth. How long can you go? That's how long you can stand without praying. Prayer is continuing communication with God. There's times of prayer that we take sometimes to pray, but we should be living in an attitude of prayer all the time, just shooting little things up as the day goes along, as we're driving along, we're at work or whatever it may be. The psalmist declared, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119, 18. God has done this for you. As you came to the Lord, he opened your eyes. 
God continues to do that as you go to him and you study the word and you depend upon him. Have you been illuminated by God for wisdom when you're lacking it, for your children, for your marriage, for relationships? You know what I'm talking about. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105 says, Life is full of holes, ensnarements. Life is full of unknowables. No one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Also, prayer is not natural of our own abilities, but supernatural by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, 26 to 28. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our infirmities, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. So it's the Spirit of God making intercession according to groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul says the gifts of tongues by the Holy Spirit also aids a person to pray. Not everybody has the gift of tongues. But those that do, it's called your prayer language. Paul says, I can pray with the Spirit, I can pray with my understanding also. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. So we are always, um, we are to always pray in all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17 tells us. We are to build up ourselves in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 20 of Jude tells us. Now, those who do not have the gift of tongues... Prayer and groaning of the Holy Spirit, He intercedes, Romans 8, 26 to 28. Those who have their prayer language, tongues, then they pray that way, 1 Corinthians 14, 14. Because the command in Jude, verse 20, is a general command to everybody praying in the Holy Spirit. So Paul identifies praying in tongues as prayer, speaking in tongues as prayer. But not everybody has the gift of tongues, so how will the others do it? It has to be Romans chapter 8, verse 26 to 28, because it's a general command that everybody's to do it. It's simple. It's the only way I can explain it. There's no other way. Now, this doesn't mean that I have no control of myself. As some people say, a tongues, you know, I couldn't help myself. You can't. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, Okay. God's not going to have you roll around the ground or foam at the mouth or anything like that. It's just not happening. Now, prayer implies three things. A dependency on God, a desire to follow or to fellowship with God, and a desire to tap into the things of God, His will, His purposes. Often people teach prayers to get things from God. That's not really the primary purpose of prayer. Daniel sought the Lord in prayer to seek the will and the mind of God as to how he would fit into to his program. Now that the captivity was almost up, and God gave him the 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel 9. Prayer is to seek the Lord and to align myself with the will of God. Lord, what would you have me to do? How do I fit in? Prayer is initiated by the Spirit of God as well as promoted by the Word. You remember in Exodus 32, 32, Moses interceded for Israel by the Holy Spirit, requesting 
to be blotted out of the book of life. Moses says, if you cannot forgive them, then blot my name out of the book of life. Now, that petition was prompted by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, we have to conclude that Moses was more compassionate than God and more patient. Which way you want it? You can't say that. Otherwise, Moses is saying that. That's God's desire laying prayer in the heart of Moses to lift that up to God so God could answer exactly what he laid on his heart. Otherwise, you have to conclude that Moses is more patient and more compassionate than God. It's impossible. No person is that good. It is God's Spirit working in me and you to lift those desires to God. Daniel was prompted to seek the Lord in prayer, as we said, as he studied the book of Jeremiah and recognized the captivity was almost up in Daniel 9, verse 2. God's Spirit was the one initiating Daniel's prayer through the Word. He's searching the books of Jeremiah. And prayer is being initiated also, coming from the Lord. Paul declared that he could wish himself a curse, remember, for Christ, for his countrymen, Israel, in Romans 9.3. Once again, do you think that that prayer came from Moses? This is the work of God's Holy Spirit in and through Paul. This is not natural from our sin nature. It's God working in us and through us. So, prayer speaks for itself, as I said this morning, the ratio. One mouth, two ears. I need to listen. Prayer is listening, waiting upon God. Not just speaking. Now, prayer throughout the scriptures involved with God's will and others' needs more than self. We are to pray according to the will of God, and He will hear us, 1 John 5, 14 tells us. The will of God is always found in the Word of God. And the will of God never contradicts the Word of God. They both are one. Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done in Luke twenty two forty two. He was not praying for Himself, He was praying for others. Jesus is my intercessor and the lawyer for my defense. He's my high priest at the throne of grace. As Hebrews 4, 14 and 16 says, we should come readily to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy in time of need. He is ready to plead my case before the Father for forgiveness when I agree that I'm a sinner. 1 John 2, 1. If I do not acknowledge my sin, he doesn't even listen to me. It's not, a, a, it's not a, a negotiation. I confess, I agree with him that I have sinned. Because sin disrupts my fellowship. And so when I confess, he cleanses me. But if I don't confess, I'm out of fellowship. It's just that simple. If we sin when we cease to pray, and that's exactly what we do, according to the testimony of Samuel. Listen to him in 1 Samuel 12, 23. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. You see, Israel did not want Samuel's kids to rule over them because they were not walking with God and they wanted a king like all the nations. And so, 
Samuel took it personally. And God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Sam. They're rejecting me. Get over it. Samuel got his eyes off the Lord. Mighty man of God like that. It can happen to any of us. Prayer brings us back to reality. A prayerless life is a life like driving a car blindfolded or without a steering wheel. Very dangerous and very destructive. Because rather than God directing and guiding my life, then I am making the decisions for my life. And that can be very dangerous. Before we were in Christ, we made some bad, bad decisions. We were just following the crowd. And if we were the leader, we were following Satan. So it doesn't matter. Either way, it wasn't good. Prayer involves silence also, not just speaking as I said. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God in Psalm 46, 10. This is not contemplative prayer that is taught by the emergent church. To empty your mind. No, it's not what the Bible teaches. That's the practice of the early church fathers of the Catholic church. Okay, it opens yourself up to demons and everything else. It's not prayer that is taught in the Bible. The psalmist tells of the man who was being envious at the wicked, thinking he had made a mistake in following God. What turned him around? Listen to Psalm 73, 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Prayer will always bring you back to the reality. It will put your emotions aside and your feelings aside and your torted perspective and all. Prayer as you commune with God. Isaiah tells us, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40 verse 31. Notice, it is from heaven to earth that that source comes. Not earth to heaven. The direction is very, very important. We can get tired in the work of God. But we should never get tired of the work of God. But if we do the will of God, then he will enable us to do the work of God. Not by might, not by power, but by your Holy Spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6. Leonard Ravenhill said, quote, By our attitude to prayer, we tell God that what was begun in the spirit, we can finish in the flesh. The secret of praying is praying in secret. <laughs> That's good. John Wesley spent two hours in prayer daily and often said that, quote, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. Charles Finley said, quote, every minister ought to know that if the prayer meetings are neglected, all his labors are in vain. Prayer was a secret to Spurgeon's ministry. According to his own words, he said, quote, my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe. That it has a more uh, omnipotent force than electricity, attraction, gravitation, or any other of those secret forces which men have called by name, but which they do not understand. Quote, Spurgeon says, I do not believe that God ever fills a cup which is not empty, or that he ever 
fills a man's mouth with his word while that man has his mouth full of his own words. He says, even as the noon influences the tides, uh, the moon influences the tides of the sea, even so does prayer, which is the reflection of the sunlight of heaven, and is God's moon in the sky influence the tides of the godliness. And so prayer, so important from the beginning in Genesis to the end of the book of Revelation. The scriptures tell us that prayer is a matter of the heart posture, not necessarily physical posture. Um, there, um, Jesus told the Pharisees, remember the tax collector who went to pray. He went to um, pray and, and then he, he prayed, the other prayed to himself. The tax collector prayed to himself while um, that was in Luke 18, 11 through 14. The self-righteous Pharisee, he, he just thought he was above. And so he prayed to himself. The tax collector, he just was long ways away. The publican just striking his breast and says, Lord, propitiate me, a sinner. That man prayed to himself. The other man walked away justified because he cast himself upon the Lord. So is the attitude of the heart. Not so much the position of our bodies. The position of the body can, can be on our feet, on our knees, on our backs, our face to the ground, hands lifted up to heaven. But if the heart is not humble, only desiring to be seen of men, God does not hear that prayer. He ignores it. You find those different positions I just mentioned in 1 Kings 8, 22 and 54 as Solomon dedicated the temple. Now, some things are proper in public for worship, those that do not call attention to yourself. And then there are other things for private demonstration only to God. So there is a time when you can do certain things. Some people always say, well, you guys, you guys just quench the spirit. You know, we can't dance in the spirit. We can't do this. There's a certain type of worship for public. And there's a certain type of worship for private. It's just simple. Because when we're in public, we want to make sure that Jesus gets all the glory. That he gets all the attention. And that you're not distracting from the worship that brings glory to God. Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach them how to pray, as you know. In Matthew 6, 5 through 13, Jesus gave an example of prayer for content, not for a pattern. Nor can it be the Lord's prayer, for there's, no, there's petition for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has never committed sin. So he can never pray that prayer. Prayer is not to be used to bring attention to myself like a hypocrite standing in the synagogue to pray or in the corner of the street to be seen by men to receive some reward. I have it as people applaud me. Verse 5 there of Matthew 6. Prayer is not for man's ears, but for God's in the secret of my room. And he will reward me openly there in verse 6 of chapter 6 of Matthew. Prayer is not to be vain repetition in verse 7. I used to pray like this as a Catholic. That's all I knew. Pray like a parent. Over and over again, right? Thinking I was heard. Prayer is not informing God about something that he doesn't know. Verse 8 says. He knows everything. Prayer is marked by certain characteristics from verse 8 to 13 of Matthew 6. First, in verse 9, our relationship, his dwelling and his holiness. Our Father, which art in heaven. 
Second verse 10, God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what our prayer should contain. It shows us what our prayers should be involved in. Thirdly, verse 11, our dependency for our daily bread. But see, we get so used to just going to the store and we need a loaf of bread. Well, what are you going to do if there's a disaster and there's no store? There's nothing wrong with going to the store and buying a loaf of bread. I do the same thing. What I'm saying is we can get in an attitude where we really aren't depending on the Lord, thanking Him for the things that we have. You know, the, 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 the clean sheets in our beds, the, the, the warm water that comes into our bathroom, whatever it may be. We can just become indifferent to all these things. Fourthly, in verse 12, God's forgiveness for our sins because we are sinners and we'll continue to miss the mark. But we have to be on our guard for those, be on guard for those who say that you no longer have to um, ask forgiveness after you're saved. Listen, when sin enters your life or mine, it breaks fellowship with God. Clear example, you're on the cell phone, you're driving. Even though you shouldn't have it in your hand, there it is. And you drive through a hole and you drop your collar like a bad habit. It isn't until you get reception again. That's what happens when sin enters your life and mine. It draws my fellowship with God until I acknowledge my sin, confess my sin, I get back in fellowship with God. Is that clear? All right? Forgiveness for sin is for salvation. Forgiveness after salvation is for ongoing fellowship. Our deliverance from evil is another one against the evil one, Satan. Verse 13. He will always come back at a more opportune time. Always. You see, prayers to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, not by contemplative prayers, I said, of the emergent church, which says anyone can have a God encounter by bringing one's mind to a point of silence, which is tapping into demons, not Jesus. There's a big distinction. And all the emergent teachers push contemplative prayer. APU, Fuller Seminary, all of them. The majority of Christian churches do today. Okay? Prayer is commanded by Jesus. Listen to Jesus in, in uh, Luke 18.1. He says, men ought always to pray. Prayer is an obligation to God. We are to live in an attitude of prayer, as I said earlier. All the time. Paul put it this way. That we are to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 517. Prayer is to be a regular practice. The minute I wake up, Lord, fill me. Lord, prepare my heart for you today. Then I get out of bed, not before. <laughs> Lord, go before me. Prayer is to mark a total dependency on the Lord. You talk to Him when you're in the shower, when you're driving down the road, when you're at work, when whatever. You have that relationship. Many Christians are taken in by so-called Christian psychology rather than talking to God about their problems and they're sucked into all this humanism and everything else that goes along with it. Let me challenge you in prayer as I am preaching and teaching in the morning. We've done three services for 36 years. Next month we're going to two services. Take, come to one and on the other one, 
go in the prayer room. And while I'm preaching and teaching, be praying for the Word of God. So the Word of God can be effective as people hear it over the internet and people that are here that don't know Jesus Christ. That's the secret. Your prayers, believing that God is at work here. Very, very important. The importance of prayer in the believer's life is undeniable, as the scriptures teach us. Thirdly, the importance of the word in the believer's life. The word is the means by which Christ chose to sanctify the believer, as you know. Listen to John 17, 17. The word of God reveals the spiritual and the moral standard of God, which the bride of Christ agrees with and is to live by. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Objective truth. The emergent church says we cannot learn any objective truth from the Bible. Really? That's why they don't study. If I'm commanded to study, it's because I'm responsible to obey. And I can't understand it. And God holds me accountable to it. This is the real Lord's Prayer. Not the one that he taught his disciples to the content. This is the Lord as he's praying to his father in John 17. God has set us apart for himself by his word completely. Paul declared that Jesus would present to himself a bride without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing by the washing of the water by the word. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Stop and think. Where would you be? In the years that you've been in Christ, if you had not studied the Word of God, you'd be jacked up. You wouldn't be sitting here, guaranteed. You just wouldn't be. Have you been out of fellowship with God due to sin? Then confess your sin. Receive the cleansing. Get into fellowship with Him. Have you experienced worldly foul language as you're out there sometimes long hard day all of a sudden you get home you open the word of God and you get into the word of God and it's a sense of cleansing of your mind and everything it's what the word of God does to us Paul says the word is transforming our minds to prove what is that good except in the perfect will of God in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 over and over and over again God's will is found in God's word. I say it all the time. God's mind becomes ours by the Holy Spirit transforming work. To be more like Him. To desire more what He desires. The word equips the same for ministry. In the ministry and maturity in Christ Jesus. For the edifying the body of Christ to the maturity of Christ, as Ephesians 4, 12-13 says, growth is needful for every saint. Development is equally needful in the life of every child of God. Maturity must exist at every level at growth and development. Just like a child. When you're a parent, you're looking for, for growth in size, in proportion, development, and maturity. The same spiritually, God requires that of you and I. How are you doing in your growth? How long have you been in Christ? How's your development? How's your maturity? You're the one that can gauge it. You're the one that knows how long you've been walking. 
you know where you're at. And so I am responsible to God for that. The various levels of mature people in the church attribute to the maturity of the believers as the various individuals of the family are essential to develop the maturity of that child. And that's why one of the reasons <clears throat> today in our society, um, the, the society is messed up because families are all torn apart. You have families that don't have dads, don't have moms. The uncles are not around. The grandparents are raising the kids. There's not the regular level of mom and dad, children, grandparents, uncles, nephews, dads. So everybody's hammering in and adding to the development of that person. And when someone gets in trouble, they have someone there to smack their head or whatever it is. Today, there's no one around to stop you or anything else. You fall through the cracks. And there's no examples. So you have to depend on the word of God. There's no excuse that you didn't have a dad. And don't tell me that you think you're, that your dad, that, you're, that God is like your dad. You know better than that. That's something that you heard from psychologists. So you repeat it like a parrot. No stupid person, not the smartest person ever thinks that, that because they had a bad dad that God's going to be the same. They know that God's greater than his dad. It's just an excuse. And so we need to realize that God is the one that will direct and guide us and mature us and develop us. We have no excuse. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. For the purpose is not being tossed to and fro also with every wind of doctrine there in Ephesians 4.14. So the word of God keeps you in line, keeps you in step as all these doctrines come in and you say, no, that doesn't add up. No, it doesn't measure. And all that, that says this, all this contradicts the word of God here. No, this, this says something that God doesn't say. And you're able to make judgment because you know the word of God. You're able to say without being arrogant or anything, no, you're wrong. Let me show you what the Bible says. That contradicts the Bible. That is your responsibility. That's my responsibility. Without God's word, we're all candidates for deception. Without God's word, people may be sincere, but end up being sincerely wrong and lost and deceived. The word of God is a two-edged sword. Piercing the sun of the soul and the spirit, Hebrews 4.12. Dividing the snare of the soul, the intent of the heart. The word is illuminated and taught by the Holy Spirit of God, as you know. The spirit reveals all things in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 through 16. The natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit of God as absolute truth. Their foolishness to him. The believer judges all things having the mind of Christ, Paul tells us. So the believer has an unction by the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 2.20, as I said this morning, this does not mean that we're not to sit under a teacher, a pastor teacher. It means that God uses the pastor teacher to teach, but it's the Spirit of God who is illuminating, convicting, directing, and guiding me as I come to listen to God's voice. Teachers are called anointed and used by God, but it is the illuminating work of the Spirit of God that makes all things true and powerful. God is not the author of confusion. God's word is valid only in its context. Too often there is twisting the scripture for one's own benefit. Teaching apart from the Holy Spirit brings about sterility in the church and death. And so the word establishes God's authority, not man's. Jesus said, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 59. 
Paul warned, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Colossians 2.9 Paul says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, proper for doctrine, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 Peter points out that the scriptures are not just mere writings of men, but men of all were carried along by the Spirit of God. They didn't come from their own impulse, their own origin. But they were inspired, carried along, so that what they recorded is inerrant and infallible. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. This is the Word of God. Inerrant, infallible. Put this book on one side and all your other books stack them up on the other side. And a great distance between them. The word reveals God in a personal way and demands a response. The righteousness of God is revealed in Christ. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2, 4. And Paul makes that proclamation in Romans 1, 16 and 17. The means... Is by confession. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. Romans 10, 9 through 10. The hearing of the gospel, the powerful message of salvation. The person of Christ is the word made flesh, the ultimate expression of the image of God in the person of God. John 1, 1, John 1, 14, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Over, over, so many scriptures, the same thing. You see, the word is to be valued and preserved by the church. We are to hold fast to the pattern of sound words. The word sound there is health giving. We get the word hygiene from it. Healthful words. Second Timothy 1.13 We are to take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine to continue in them. For in doing these, we will save ourselves and others who hear us. First Timothy 4.16 we are to pass to others what we've learned, 2 Timothy 2.2. We are to contend for the faith delivered once and for all, Jude verse 3. It is through prayer and the word that the believer in church experiences God's fellowship and transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. Martin Luther says the following, and I'm quoting. I study my Bible as I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. Then I shake each limb, and when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. Then I look under every leaf. I search the Bible as a whole, like shaking the whole tree. Then I shake every limb, study book after book. Then I shake every branch, giving attention to the chapters, when they do not break the sense. Then I shake every twig as a careful study of the paragraphs, the sentences, the words, and their meanings. How are we doing? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with just reading. I read my Bible straight through at least once a year. Just forgot to speak to me and feed me, but then I study. Study, you take time. You tear it apart. The newborn believer is compared to the newborn babe who has a potential for growth. 
Listen carefully. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. 1 Peter 2, 2. Milk, you know, is a proper food for the infant and provides all the necessary nourishment until the digestive tract is developed. And mother's milk is always the best. And in breastfeeding the child, the woman receives a great benefit also. But modern age comes along and, you know, we don't want to be bothered with it. We don't want to do this and that. That's a whole different issue. But that baby comes home. He, he's, he's looking for food like those baby birds. Okay? The mother's milk has nutrients and immunities that other milk does not. Milk is given to an infant in small and frequent amounts because he or she is unable to take great amounts. They will develop an appetite. The unadulterated word, just as it is in the, in the Bible, without adding anything to it, all other books have to be judged by the word of God. We must read the Bible more than other books. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Hebrews 5.13 tells us. You see, the believer must go from infanthood to young believers. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. John gives us three spiritual stages. Listen to it. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men. Because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children. Because you have known the father. Children. Young men. Fathers. Three levels of maturity necessary within the church of Jesus Christ. Nourishing has to do with food for life and growth. Being alive and staying healthy in the spirit. Being passionate to grow. Development has to do with the progressive growth and proportion of our potential and capacity in Christ. There is a distinction between growth and development. Don't confuse them. Some Christians are knowledgeable in prophecy, and that is all they know. That's all they ever study. Some Christians remain spiritual infants all their life. They're wetting their pants and scraping their knees spiritually all the time. Others remain the spiritual teenagers, being ikes. I know everything. Rebellious, self-will, causing trouble, being Tasmanian devils. One who refuses to grow from milk to solid food will be carnal, playing church instead of being the church. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual people, but as unto carnal, as to babes in Christ. And even now you are still not able, because you're still carnal. You see, the believer must move forward from a young man to fatherhood. Continuing to be nourished spiritually, to grow, never thinking you've arrived. Continuing to develop progressively in proportion and to the potential capacity that Christ has enabled you. Continuing to mature, arriving to the full age at each level of growth and development, being responsible and accountable to Christ Jesus. We have all 
known our own children who have been given everything. And if they're not made accountable, then they become entitled. And so we must encourage one another and exhort one another to be doers of the word of God. We all have seen what lack of accountability and responsibility does. That's not to be the believer. You see, the believer can only grow in faith and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by the word of God. In spiritual capacity, listen to Second Peter 1, 5 through 9. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's a Christian he's speaking to. That's not a non-believer. Second Peter 3, 7-18, Peter warns, You therefore, beloved Christians, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Christians, if there is no potential of you being deceived, why the warning? Simple. Do you as a parent warn your child because there's no reality of what you're warning them about? Let's give the Holy Spirit a break then. Paul puts it this way. That no believer ever arrives while they're alive. Listen carefully. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold on me. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Philippians 3, 12 through 15. You see the believer's growth and maturity equips him for the work of the ministry through the men given to the church, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. That's why you're here tonight. That's why you're here in the morning. That's why you're here in the midweek. To equip to see what God wants you to do and how to do it. The believer's growth and maturity is marked by their ability and rightly dividing the word of truth. Listen. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A workman does not need to be right, ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 Development. Growth, development, and maturity. Able to digest solid food. That means you're grown up, you're mature. Hebrews 5.14 And so the importance of the word in the believer's life is invaluable. Invaluable. This is the nature of the church, ladies and gentlemen. It's not entertainment. It's not making you feel good or happy. <laughs> Prayer and the Word are the two life-transforming twins of the New Testament. Evident by the importance of prayer and the Word in the New Testament church, it's unmistakable. The importance of prayer in the believer's life is undeniable. And the importance of the word in the believer's life is invaluable. 
That's the nature of the church, ladies and gentlemen. It has never changed at all. But men and women are attempting to change it today. It's your choice which church you're going to join. The Lord's church or man's church. The choice is yours. Father, thank you for your grace and your love and your goodness. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, we pray for anybody who doesn't know you that's here or over the Internet that you minister their heart. Fathers, you make yourself known to them, Lord, by your grace. If you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Right where you sit, you can accept them. It's called repentance. This is your prayer to the Lord, not to us. And if you mean it, believing that Jesus is God who died for your sins, you can be saved right now as you pray to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.